Well, good morning, church family. We, during the summer, I think this is our fourth year, maybe third year, that we do a, a series called BIOS, Stories That Shape Us. Uh, you're, if, you, if you've been here, you're familiar with that. If not, um, your first time here during the summer, uh, we share stories of church members who are sitting out in the pews, not the pastors, but from ch church members, uh, significant stories that impacted their lives, that shaped their lives, passions, creativity, challenges, any of those things. This morning, it's my honor to introduce to you John Webster, although I'm going to refer to him as Dr. Webster. I'll tell you why. I met Dr. Webster back in 1992 in South Africa when my family moved from one part in South Africa to Helderberg College. I was two weeks late to school because my dad was moving from the South African Union Conference down there, so I was a little bit late, and I met uh, Dr. Webster's son, Gregory, who became a really close friend of mine. And the long story short is that the Webster family adopted me into their family, essentially they're my second family. But I went to Helderberg College to study theology and Dr. Webster was my primary mentor. Uh, he's an incredible human being with a passion for thinking well of God. Uh, and I learned systematic theology from him. My claim to fame is to have had about 40 classes from him because when I came to La Sierra, he was my primary teacher also. And anybody who knows anything about a Dr. Webster class knows that I walk almost on water for having taken 40 classes with you. Um, but anything good I say, uh, it comes from Dr. Webster and everything that is wrong is from me. <laughs> um, and their family enabled me to come to the US as well and to serve at this church here. And so it's an honor for me to introduce to you uh, Dr. John Webster this morning, who I shall continue to call Dr. Webster, even though he told me to call him John. Um, Dr. Webster. Uh, um, you know, I wish old students would be um as different as you are <laughs> these years. But you'd think after 40 classes, and now that dear Walter is actually one of my pastors in this church, that finally he would be willing to call me John. But it's, it's, it, I think it's deep in South African culture. I'm trying to get him, if not Dr. Webster, call me Uam, which means uncle, <laughs> uncle. in Afrikaans. Maybe I'll try grandpa. Um. <laughs> you get what you ask for. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Webster, uh, we are here this morning to share a story from your life, um, and I happen to intersect with that a little bit as well, but we really um, want to hear your story and take us back to April 27, um, 1994, perhaps two years ago actually, you were standing in front of this building. Yes, well thank you very much, it's a, a, a privilege to be here with you and share a little bit, an aspect of my life and part of our lives that intersected. Uh, this rather, uh, uh, you know, plain looking building, uh, two years ago we had to have our passports renewed and so on the right hand side is the Department of Home Affairs and that's where you go and it was a long line waiting to get into the building. And while waiting there, my mind went back to April 27, 1994, which was the first full, fair, free, one person one-vote election in South Africa's history. And that very building is the building where we went down in Somerset West to vote. And I've often said to, to people that standing in line, and standing in line in some places 
This was not the line. <laughs> this was in another place, but, but it, was it was in another place. Hours and hours with thousands of people trying to vote in various places. And that experience sort of has almost a quasi-liturgical feel to me. Slightly, sort of like a secular analog of a spiritual experience. Uh, one, of, um, uh, one of my uh, teachers in graduate school, James Loder, who's a psychologist and practical theologian, I wrote a book called Transforming Moments. And for me, uh, thinking back, that standing in line to vote in 1994 at that building was, was like a transforming moment. Because while waiting, it suddenly became, a, you know, it suddenly concretized and made real the kinds of divisions that we had all grown up with in South Africa. South Africa is a highly divided country. And I can think of five different types of divisions. First of all, um, obvious one is race. Here we were standing of every shade of color in this line waiting to vote. But that's just the obvious, that's just the surface um, experience. Uh, 40 years of, of apartheid in South Africa had kept races fundamentally separated. And so the person standing next to me who was black would have had an identity put onto their birth certificate, which would have shaped the rest of their life, where they can live, who they could marry, uh, what job they could take. But over and above that, there was a second difference of colonialism. I saw one person in line with anatomical features that clearly indicated that person went back to Khoisan background, some of the oldest human communities known, with ancestry going back centuries uh, before my oldest ancestor came out as a French Huguenot in 1680s. Uh, so, you know, colonialism was another form of division that's not unique to South Africa throughout the whole of America and the Americas both and Africa, many parts of Asia. So, um, to experience colonialism and racism and race, but also economic differences. I stood next to a lady who was a person who worked in, the, in a home and was essentially a domestic servant. And here I was a professor. And to just discover as we talked together that while there was so much difference, there was some common humanity. We both had similar aspirations and dreams for our kids and we were going. And as these divisions which we'd lived with were gradually breaking down, it was a dramatic experience. Uh, educational differences. I had a PhD, I'd just returned from graduate school in 1991, this was 94, and people standing around me, some of whom were barely literate. Um, cultural and linguistic differences. As you know, South Africa has 11 official languages. So the separation, that's today, the separation, and doesn't include Khoisan, which is the oldest language, the language of cliques. And so all of these differences had been weaponized. They, they turned people into little communities where birds of a feather flock together, sometimes enforced by policy and by law, and then the other becomes a threat, and the other becomes stereotyped. So standing in that line was a moment in which all of a sudden as a Christian I realized, ah, this is what communion is supposed to be, where we gather around the table of communion and we're all supposed to be the same. It was a beautiful moment, but up until that point there 
was a lot of um, anxiety in the country as to what exactly would happen. Uh, many people had feared that violence and civil war would break out uh, after Mandela was released and the whole process um, it was questionable what was going to happen on this day. I'm going to interject with a very brief story of my own. Um, I sang uh, in a group called 4 Plus 1 at Helderberg College when I was a student. The reason that we were And you see a deal of old Devo there with the following? Yeah, I'm the plus one. Um, <laughs> partly because I, I was the plus one, not a great singer, but also because I was the only white dude with, uh, with my brothers as we sang. We, uh, we thought it would be hilarious to, to, to name our quartet, quintet four plus one. Um, then, uh, unfortunately, the, the, one of our other people disappeared, and so then we were four, uh, and really cool singing Boys to Men songs, and then we ended up being Harmony Five, and in 1994, I was just too young to vote, which I, I, I wish I was older, um, so I could cast my vote, but our quartet uh, understood what is happening in the country, and we used to sing the song called This Same Jesus by the Breath of Life Quartet, this same Jesus who walked in Galilee, etc. We changed the words of that song just, before, uh, just after the election to go like this. Now remember, this is high school poetry, so it's not very good. Just but it look, was. Just look at the previous slide. Would you trust that crowd? <laughs> just, just look at them. Uh, not this way. <laughs> so we, we're singing as a, as a quartet in front of this crowd, and uh, you can go back to the other slide. But this <laughs> is how we changed the words. Uh, we changed the words to this same Jesus who walked in Galilee. Uh, actually, we changed it to this same Jesus in 1994. Well, now this same Jesus prevented civil war. This same Jesus protected our land. Thank you, Jesus, for your mighty hand. And that is how we, as young teenagers, uh, experienced that. There was a deep relief that violence did not break out. But now the question is, what do you do with such a troubled history? Yeah, that's, that's the question. Once the euphoria of this moment of common humanity was over, the election was done, Mandela was elected president, the ANC came to power, now the recognition is, now what? Thousands of people in South Africa had lost loved ones without trace. Police giving stories, but people knowing the reality was different. Three options seemed to, to loom. Uh, one was an argument, which is very understandable. Let's find the culprits for gross human rights abuses. And let's litigate, and let's justice reign, and let's uh, lock up the people who've done bad things in our past. I can understand that. I can understand when, when your life has been shattered by, by gross abuses of, of human rights, why you'd want that instinct. So that would be retributive justice. Retributive justice, Nuremberg trial style. But Mandela realized and said quite publicly that to do that would to commit South Africa to decades, if not a half a millennium of litigation. We're still litigating the final events from the Second World War. Imagine what would happen in South Africa. The other option, which was preferred by those in power, the, the former white government, was general amnesty. Let's close the books. Let bygones be bygones. Let's go into a bright new future. Let's be, let's have, sing hallelujah and hold hands, kumbaya, and everything will be fine. But you know, when you try to band aid over serious abuses and hurts, uh, that's a problem. And so, 
Mandela and others in the society came up with this third option to create a truth and reconciliation commission which would allow for people to, to apply to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission who had been involved in acts of terror and acts of state oppression and violence and actually receive amnesty if their acts were not criminal and had been for a political reason and been part of the struggle. And uh, that was one of the functions of the TRC. But the other part was to tell the, you know, get the history out of what had not, people didn't know. And toward the very end of this process, faith communities were asked to do a self-analysis. And so we want to give you a slice of this time in South Africa's history through the eyes of Dr. Webster, who was tasked primarily to craft a statement on behalf of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Africa. Uh, like he had said, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission invited faith communities to su submit statements uh, to say what was their part in uh, the apartheid. And, um, and so, yeah, it came to your table from South African Union Conference. Initially, there was some question as to whether this should be done by the church at all. Yeah, a lot of divided opinion. Um, in fact, initially, so the church wasn't even approached, uh, that, whether that was an oversight or whether we had such a little public profile, who knows. But some of the younger, newer black pastors in the, in the country said, good grief, as a church, we are not untarnished with this 40-year period of apartheid. We have things to speak about. And remember, at this time in South Africa, the church was divided along racial lines as well. We had three separate conferences uh, in the different areas, black conference, colored conferences, which are mixed separate race, unions. separate unions, and white conferences, yeah. So not officially, we were one church, only I think one of the Catholics and Adventists and maybe one other had not divided because most, most churches had just simply divided up. So you have a church for each different racial group with a completely separate organization and structure. But uh, that, that, little, that little good point didn't alleviate the drift into doing, mirroring what happened in society. And so maybe we won't dwell too much on how it got to right. be, but Dr. Webster was tasked with uh, a, a, another group of people to, to craft a statement on behalf of the church that would be submitted to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And here is the statement, the short version of it. You will see it in your uh, worship guides as well in the front if you want to follow that. It's an eight-page document that is online at our church website if you want to see it. There's also at the doors if you want to pick it up. But we're going to quickly unpack this statement uh, to demonstrate how the church wrestled with this. And we'll go through this statement in three uh, slides because you cannot read all of this. So, Dr. Webster, if you want to read us the statement that you came up with here. Just, just a word of introduction. So... Uh, the decision was made, I was chair of the department, theology department at the time, and one of the committees finally uh, was desperate because a church secretary in the union had written a little statement and said, we'll give you the eight pages you require in two weeks. And uh, then they've circulated to various entities and there was pandemonium. Some said, how dare we make statements, we're getting involved in politics, we shouldn't do it. Others said, this is watered down nonsense, the church is much more culpable. And finally somebody said, don't we have a theology department? Well, they must do it. And so that's how it landed up uh, on our table. Even my colleagues on the department didn't want to do it. So I gathered some students. Fortunately, at that time, we had students from every demographic group and we worked together on a statement. And we made a decision, number one, that we would not simply revert to human, general, generic human rights or political language, that we would make this a statement of faith 
for a Seventh-day Adventist. Hopefully it could be used by Seventh-day Adventists in church. Let's use Adventist language. Let's use biblical language to try to say what we need to say. So here's the opening little statement. Um, as Seventh-day Adventists, we confess, and you'll immediately notice that word confess can be used in two ways. Confess your faith, what do you believe, but also confess your sins and acknowledge where you failed. And those two ideas belong together. As Seventh-day Adventists, we confess our faith in the coming God. Now, after 40 classes, Devo, you should recognize. Yes. That is maybe a theme I've tried to focus. The Advent means the coming God, but it's biblical. Yeah. It's not a Webster creation, right? And just to make sure you know that, there's a verse, the one who was, who is, and was, and who is to come. Revelation 41, verse 4, 8, and many, many places. Who as such calls for the endurance of the saints? Do you recognize this verse? The patience of the saints? those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Can I put it to you this way, church? Could you be any more Adventist than Revelation 14? Right? Amen. So we didn't want to dodge things. We said, all right, if that's what we say we believe, buried in that very statement, it's not just about beliefs and doctrines. It has to say something about how we live in the world. It indicates a stance in the world. So the next paragraph. The second part. Uh, you read it. My voice was. Sorry, I. Uh, Can you see it? Yeah, I, I also need um, glasses. In the face of the heresy of apartheid, we confess uh, that we have failed by our sins of omission and commission by properly evidence the. Uh, to properly evidence the endurance of the saints, keep the commandments of God, or hold fast to the faith of Jesus, thereby misrepresenting the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. This statement was largely taken verbatim by the South African Union and became the official statement for the Seventh-day Adventist Church to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in, but let me tell you what a fight there was over calling apartheid a heresy. Hmm. Because people said, oh, a heresy, that's a theological issue. <laughs> Uh, this is a political thing. How, how can you mix those categories? But we said, if the gospel is God with us and bringing us all together around the communion table, how can racial segregation and apartheid not be a theological heresy? And so the last part of the statement says, this has been hurtful to our society, to the identity of, and the mission of our corporate church, and to the lives of its individual members. Therefore, in deep repentance, we seek for forgiveness from God and our fellow citizens and commit ourselves to reformation, justice, and reconciliation. You know, it's not common for churches to make statements of confession in this form. I think I can think of one or two other cases in the Adventist church when we've tried to do this. Because normally we want to talk about good things. We've got good news to share with the world. And we want to share the gospel. But sometimes the gospel also means saying, ah, we've got baggage. And so one of the things I'd like you to think about just in these few moments together is what do we do with baggage? What do we do when the church hasn't lived up to its own ideals and its own profession? So what we did is we took those classic Adventist notions, the patience of the saints or endurance of the saints, keeping the commandments of God and Holding the faith of Jesus or the testimony of Jesus and try to show how if we had done those things properly would have meant we would have acted differently within the society. So this feels a little bit like a theology lecture class. <laughs> 
Especially Dr. Webster, divide things in three ways. So we're going to unpack... No, no, that's the Bible, not me. <laughs> that is the Bible, <laughs> Trinitarian. We're going to unpack just these three, senten- uh, these three sentences and how that applies to uh, the church in South Africa in their confession. So the first is the endurance uh, of the saints. And I won't, re- I won't read it. It'll be up on the screen. You can look at that. But here's the essence. We said, if at the heart of our Adventist faith, and this is one of these eschatological passages or passages from the book of Revelation that we often use to summarize our faith. If it starts with here is the patience or the endurance of the faith, why did we show so little willingness to endure suffering uh, in order to stand up for what was right? Because that's really what happened. We were looking after our own minority interests, you know? Uh, Can we... um, have our young people in the military service get Sabbath off? Mm -hmm. Or can we um, make sure that our properties are protected? Rather than really thinking about the millions of people in the country who are suffering on a day-by-day basis. Why were we unwilling to stand up a little bit and endure some suffering when this has been what the gospel calls us to do? That's the essence of, here is the patience of the saints. And then keeping the commandments of God? So we went through each of the Ten Commandments and said, if we really wanted to be commandment keepers, let's think about how these commandments call us to act differently, not only in terms of our relationship to Jesus, but also in terms of our living in a society. Maybe uh, just the Sabbath one would maybe be useful. Yeah, so um, let me see. I'm in the wrong, wrong spot here. This one here. Yep. Yeah, I'll see if I can read it. (laughs) Here, it's right here. But perhaps more poignantly of all, we have to ask how we could claim to properly keep the Sabbath holy without heeding its explicit demand for practical justice, co-humanity, deliverance, and healing. Do we not have to explicitly confess that precisely as Seventh-day Adventists, we should have done more to exemplify the meaning of the biblical Sabbath, both within our own community and in our external dealings with society. Furthermore, in the light of the biblical extension of the humanitarian implications of the Sabbath to the Jubilee here, should we not have realized that we are not at liberty to treat the land itself as an inalienable possession? but rather as a trust for the responsible stewardship. For surely true Sabbath keeping and keeping silence in the face of expression, oppression are mutually exclusive. So, to be a true Sabbath keeper is not only what we do on Sabbath mornings by going to church. The biblical Sabbath has implications for how we live in the world. And, and that's, that's what we try to remind ourselves. And sometimes when we don't act well in the world, it drives us back to asking, have we properly understood the very commandments that we profess to believe in? And then the last part, holding fast to the faith of Jesus. In essence, if we say that, um, you know, the testimony to Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, using another later verse in Revelation, well, the whole movement claims to have a prophetic voice, correct? (laughs) We're supposed to be a people, a prophetic movement. The prophetic movement is not just foretelling the future, it is speaking God's word in the present. Did we have, did we adequately give a prophetic witness in the context of injustice and and, and evil? And I think that's what this document asks the church to take account of, to, 
to be accountable for. And so to believe in the spirit of prophecy is not only to believe in the wonderful gifts of the spirit through individuals, but also how God is calling us as a whole movement to uh, have a word of both God's no, which is for the sake of God's yes in public society. Maybe the last words of the, of the first part of the document may be useful. Yep. Uh, let's see if we can find them. Uh, just a short paragraph. Um, yeah, therefore we commit ourselves once again and all the more earnestly to the proclamation of the everlasting gospel, of the universality of God's love. The denouncement of the Babylonian captivity of the church, do you catch the references? In which it sells its soul to the state and the articulation of a more effective and clear warning against the worship of the beast, that civil religious concoction of blasphemy, coercion, human arrogance, and injustice that seems to find root all too easily in our midst. So the takeaway, you know, why remember something that happened half a century ago? Quarter, no, quarter of a century ago. Um, and, I, and I think what I'd like to leave with you is number one, if we say we believe something as Christians, it's not just about our relationship with God in some private sense. It's about how we act out our Christian faith in the world that we're given. And sometimes that calls us at a moment just to bend the curve just a little bit in the right direction. And um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing, uh, shall we say, spectacular, miraculous about any of this. It just means, are we, are we willing where we live, when the spirit moves, to be on the side of that moving in the direction of the gospel? And um, so that's the first thing. Do we have the courage to realize that our Christian faith commits us to public acts as well as private ones. Number two, that there's a connection between truth and reconciliation. We have to tell the truth. We have to be honest with ourselves and our baggage if we're gonna find reconciliation and common humanity among people. Number three, there's a, there's a connection between confessing our faith and confessing our sins. Number four, that there is uh, ultimately, we all have baggage in your homes, and if we want to have reconciliation, if we want to have thriving relationships, we are gonna to need to know how to deal with baggage, and maybe this can be a little case study of how we can try to do that. And uh, finally, sometimes the spirit moves in strange and unexpected ways. Sometimes there are parables of the kingdom in secular spaces, and sometimes God gives us an opportunity to bear witness humbly and imperfectly and sometimes only temporarily because we don't fix all problems ever, <laughs> once and for all. But to be sort of like that donkey that Jesus co-opted to ride into Jerusalem on some occasions. And I know that the sensitivity to the movement of the Spirit characterizes this church. That's why I'm proud to be a member here at La Sierra University Church. 
And I think one last question, just personally, um, as we go back to those lines that you were part of for many hours to, to cast your vote, and we, we have that image in mind, um, why is doing theology your passion? You talked about difference that is uh, one of your passions right now. Why, is, why write something like this when you see something like that? Yeah. I think that the world today, both the religious world and our broader global world is torn to pieces and is polarized fundamentally because we're terrified by difference. And this is not entirely unlike what happened in South Africa. When one doesn't have a human connection with another person, one is e easily able to create that person into a group that is other, that is alien and strange and an enemy to be feared. Fear is a powerful emotion, and it can be used and manipulated to divide us, to lead us ultimately into wars and into all sorts of acts of inhumanity. To be a Christian means to believe in the biblical statement that perfect love casts out all fear. God created a world with difference. Difference is not always a sign of evil. When we reach across these made-up boundaries, these constructed divisions, and find the humanity in the other person. Realize that they too are a child of God. They too have baggage, as you do. But find that common humanity and build on that. I believe that is the direction that our church should go. I believe it's the challenge, and that's what drives me to keep doing this thing called theology, and that is reading the Bible and asking how this works in real life. Amen. Thank you so much to Dr. John Webster for sharing his time. One of the things that freaked me out is uh, the pastors do a, a short homily to respond to our church members, and it's a little different when your church member is your professor. Um, and you have to say something after hearing all of that and the wisdom and just the knowledge that he has. So I'm going to say something very short um, as we wrap up. As I think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Dr. Webster pouring his life into doing theology and helping us to think well about God and to, uh, and to help us also understand ourselves and our world, from the statement um, that he'd help craft it, I want to just look at the word repent. Uh, the last part of the statement uh, says, therefore in deep repentance we seek for forgiveness from God and our, of our fellow citizens and commit ourselves to reformation, justice, and reconciliation. So at the end of this statement about our confessing God and our confessing of our shortcomings, there is the statement that therefore we have deep repentance. Makes me think of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, starts off in verse 14 with Jesus coming to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, it is now, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe in the good news. So when I think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it may be something that is removed from your life, but as Dr. Webster said, what about, what do we do with baggage? What do we do when there's been horrible failure? 
privately, personally, in our own lives, we all wrestle with failures, and what do we do communally when we fail? We confess that God is God, and we are not. We confess that we have failed, and we repent. In Scripture, very often we think of the word repent um, in terms of contrition, of being sorry, but there's, a, there's another level of what repent means. Specifically in the Old Testament, the word repent means to return. Very often we say it's a turnabout, but it is return. And it is used in the context of the exile, where the Israelites return to Jerusalem, or return to the holy city, or return from exile to the temple. It is a return from where they've been in exile to God. It is all about connection with God. But there's another level that the New Testament brings out in the word repent. And that is to go beyond the mind that you have. The Greek root words combining to give us the word repent not only means to return to God, but to go beyond the mind that you have been given, to go, to go beyond the mind that you have acquired, whether it be through cultural shaping uh, or, or just where you have grown up. We all, I grew up in white privileged South Africa. I did not have a choice in that. And I had a certain mind. But when we repent, we return to God, but we don't return to where we have been. We return to go to a new place, to go beyond your mind. And in the New Testament, going beyond your mind, repentance is following the ways of Jesus, the life and teachings of Jesus. And so a return to God and this going beyond your mind is a path of reconnection, a path of transformation, of being born again, of dying and rising. It is the path of a response to the kingdom of God that says Jesus has come to proclaim that the time is fulfilled. Repent. One illustration, I found this picture, Dr. Webster, of you and me sitting in Helderberg College in your living room. And I don't know if you know the story behind this, potentially you don't. Dr. Webster came to interview for the theology position here at Lossier University and left us, his poor students, back at Helderberg College under the tutelage of uh, underlings. <laughs> Another student, a graduate student, had uh, taken over his class introduction to philosophy. It was a wild class, and I think you were gone for four or five weeks. I forget how long it was. Dr. Webster was here in the U.S. interviewing. All the while we were learning about philosophy, and what happened is Cartesian anxiety. Descartes, the philosopher who said, I think therefore I am, this student was teaching us and trying her very best to teach us good philosophy, but for four, four or five weeks of our student life, we just gave up on everything. Life was depressing, there was no meaning, perhaps there wasn't even a God, we were just depressed and it was useless. And so we did what good Adventist theology students do when they rebel, we drank a Coke. <laughs> Anyways, when Dr. Webster came back from his trip here to the US, apparently it went well, he was hired here. <laughs> uh, he walked into the class and saw that we were in Cartesian anxiety. We were questioning our existence and everything that we believed. 
And Dr. Webster took the time, he assessed this information, and he took the time, and on Friday evening, so I don't know if you remember this, we went over to his house with a group of students for a couple of Friday nights where we would have ice cream at the, his house, and he would just sit with us and talk through all kinds of things and help us to recenter our lives. And so it was interesting that this mentor returned <laughs> to us but we were able through his mentoring and teaching to return not to the place where we had been but by going beyond our mind to understand a new vision for life and what god is and yes philosophy is part of that and it's important but i still remember this when this small group of students would go to his house he had the care and the compassion and the wisdom to sit with us so that we can return to our connection with God and go beyond our mind. And that is essentially, I think, as we think about baggage in our lives and failures, the call is always to confess that Jesus is Lord and we are not. The call is to confess that we have wronged ourselves, our neighbors, our world, and to repent to return to God and to get a new mind from Jesus. And only that will bring the kind of healing that can transform a country, that can transform a church, and that can transform our lives. It is only through repentance that we truly can be healed. Amen.